78, officer. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the 1078 Project podcast. Hey, if you're new to the podcast, a little bit about our organization. The 1078 Project is a nonprofit organization that's been founded and developed by law enforcement officers who have been involved in critical incidents and officer-involved shootings. Our goal is to provide spiritual resources, practical resources, and mental health resources to law enforcement officers and their families within the first 24 to 48 hours of being involved in an officer-involved shooting or critical incident. In November of 2022, I was involved in an officer-involved shooting, and the days and weeks that follow left me feeling extremely anxious and alone. My goal and the goal of our organization is to ensure that no other officer or or his or her family has to feel that way. With that being said, we're going to start off the podcast. Today's guest is one of my best friends. He's a defensive tactics instructor. He is a criminal investigator, a former Marine, a combat veteran, and an overall fantastic dude. Today's guest is Joseph Judge. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the 1078 Project Podcast. Today's guest is Joe Judge. He's a dear friend of mine, one of my best buddies. Um, I'm really looking forward to interviewing him and uh, and hearing his story. So, what's up, Joe? Hey, what's going on? Welcome in. Thank you. It's, it's weird to talk here. to you in this, like, weird, like, in this forum. You know, with everybody else that I'm not, like, super close with, It's it seems normal to have this conversation, but yeah. with, like, an actual friend, <laughs> it seems a little weird to, like... Sit across with podcast mics in front of our face and talk, but well, this is a nice little setup you have here. Yeah, and, dude. Um, I'm only uh, doing this because I believe um, your intentions are good, and that's for a great cause, in my opinion. Yeah, I appreciate it, dude. So. I really do. Um, so the big part of this podcast is is about humanizing cops and about you know kind of telling individual stories of like what your life is like and, and what makes Joe Joe and what makes Joe tick. Um, and I think a big part of that is is like your childhood and how you grew up and the things that you went through um, growing up. Um, so sure, we'll kind of start the podcast off there and we'll roll from there, but I'll open it up to you with uh, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in a lovely city, Jennings. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Um, so actually, I lived in Country Club Hills which is within Jennings. Um, I have uh, a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, When I grew up in Jennings, my parents were married. Um, I went to Corpus Christi. That was our arch enemy, dude, Corpus Christi. And there's one other one that was like our arch. I went to Good Shepherd. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, it's like our arch enemy in sports. So, yeah, I went to Corpus Christi. Um, As you know, I was... um, one of the few white kids that mm-hmm. were in Jennings. Um, I had a couple close friends that um, kind of uh, kept me out of trouble, um, especially. Um, so I'll just get right to it. So when I was a young kid, my yeah. dad was an alcoholic, um, did not treat us well. So I would hang out with my uh Best friend at the time, who I'm still close to to this day. Um, that was kind of my um, way of uh, getting out of things. Um, it affected my school life um, and 
third grade, I ran away from school, ended up failing third grade. Um, fast forward, um, when I graduated um, Corpus Christi in, as an eighth grade student, um, my parents moved to Highland, Illinois. So it was going from uh, the city to one the country. side of the world to the other, <laughs> yeah. right? So I was uh, one of the few white kids growing up in Jennings to predominantly white area out in, uh, I don't want to say the sticks, but it was more country. Yeah, it's right? pretty rural. Yeah, it's fairly rural. Um, so I went there. I didn't feel like I uh, really fit in. So um, I had a couple close friends. I was drinking a lot, barely showed up to school. How old were you when you guys moved to Highland? How old do you think you said, did you say eighth grade? Uh, no, going into my freshman year. Okay. So my brother, were three and a half years apart, so he would have been in sixth grade. And then my sister is three and a half years younger, or three years younger than my brother. What moved you guys to Highland? Um, just to get out. Like, Jennings was getting really bad. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had to get out. So, What'd your dad do for a living? Uh, he worked for Anheuser-Busch. Okay. So he was a brewer there. No way. Yeah. And then my mother stayed home with us. Um, so we... I think uh, one of my classmates in eighth grade, actually, that's what it was. His family moved to Highland, Illinois, and um, we learned about it from them. And then my mom was close with his mother and uh, liked the area, so we decided to move to Highland. Um, my freshman year, um, like I said, I didn't really fit. I didn't really feel like I was I could fit in with that environment. Yeah, it's two different worlds. Two entirely different worlds. So um, I had a low self-esteem. Um, you just reminded me of something. <clears throat> so for the because I was going to go to Aquinas and pay for private school, right? Yeah, for high school, and um, they wanted to save money. Because they knew they they wanted to move to Highland, so I actually lived with my buddy when they moved out there for the first first quarter of my freshman year. You lived with a friend, a friend and their family. Really, they so you could stay in. in the same school, or so I could go to the public school in Highland, Illinois, because that's where we we're going to move. Oh, okay. So I lived with uh, my buddy's family, and his dad at the time, who I thought was very strict. We would uh, get home from school. Before we do anything, he'd make us do our homework. For that one quarter, that was the only time I got straight A's. Oh, really? Yeah. So then my parents ended up uh, selling the house at Country Club Hills, moving to Highland, Illinois. Um, I moved in with them, and then um, my dad's uh, alcohol alcoholism got worse. Um my mom began to self-medicate on, like, um, Xanax and, like, opiates and all that stuff. So she was just constantly in bed. And uh, <clears throat> I basically had free reign to do whatever I wanted to do. Yeah, JoJo's does not do well with free reign, dude. No. So uh, <laughs> I'd skip school all the time. I went from straight A's to D's and F's. Really? Um, I would uh, 
I was really good in soccer in eighth grade or in grade school, right? That was a sport that I excelled in. Um, I wanted to fit in, so I played football. Um, very rarely would I show up to practice. Um, I remember when I made the varsity, I skipped a football game to go out <laughs> drinking. <laughs> so uh, that didn't work out well. Uh, my senior year, um, I skipped so many days of school, and it came down to my final exam to uh, graduate. And my buddy at the time, I ended up, by the grace of God, I passed that final exam, graduated high school, and a friend of mine was joining the Marine Corps, asked me to join with him on the buddy program. So I said, sure, what you know, I got to get out of this. And uh, because of, you know, the struggles in my my home life, I said, you know, I have nothing else to lose. Um, I joined the Marine Corps in 2000. So when you were growing up and you said you are like, out drinking and stuff, do you think that was your way of dealing with, like, the home life stuff? Is that you were trying to, like, self-medicate or is it just, like, a release or what do you think? Um, I think that it plays a big part with addiction. I have an addictive mindset combined with the self-medication mm-hmm. with my home life. Yeah. Um, it was just a recipe for disaster, looking back at it. And um, as I struggled in school – my self-esteem got really low. Um, it carried on into the beginning portion of my Marine Corps career. So the, iron, the, iron, uh, the irony in this is my buddy, who convinced me to join the Marine Corps, we're in boot camp. He gets injured. He gets out. I finish boot camp. So um, I signed up as an infantryman. Uh, 0311, so I graduated boot camp in uh, San Diego, uh, MCRD. Um, I was stationed at Camp Pendleton. I, I never went through the military or anything, so describe boot camp for me. Um, <laughs> it's 12 weeks long. Um, you're not f- allowed to go anywhere. Um, when I was in in 2000, it was still, I don't, I don't want to say it was like the old days where they would like physically beat you up, but... You know, it was strict. They had a set of rules you had to abide by. You get up a certain time every on the same day, uh, same time every day. Um, it was a structure that I was just not used to whatsoever. So I had I had trouble with that. Um, <clears throat> toward the end, uh, actually get your Eagle Globe and anchor. Um, you had to go through the crucible. That's toward the end of boot camp. Did that? They give you your eagle globe and anchor, and then they. What's the crucible? It's just um, it's like Hell Week. Yeah, like Hell Week, but like a watered down version of that. Something, you know, it's just uh, I forgot how many days it is. I think it's one day, two days. Anyway, yeah, it's kind of like Hell Week, Um, and then once you complete that, then they consider you a Marine. They give you your eagle globe and anchor, and then you sit down with your drill instructors. And then they um, assign you your uh, duty station, where you're going to go. I went to Camp Pendleton in California. I was stationed uh, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Um, With my um, company, it was Kilo. So in the, let me uh, rewind that, go back. After boot camp, 
you go on leave. Then they, um, since I was in the infantry, they flied me out for my other, um, it's called the school SOI, School of Infantry. I believe that is eight weeks long. You go there and you just learn the, <clears throat> basically like the weapons, kind of um, just the very basics of what you're going to do as a rifleman. What year was this, do you think? Well, I signed up in 2000, so I was in from 2000 to 2004. Okay. So, um, boot camp is 12 weeks long, and then we go on leave for, I believe, a week, week or two, and then I go right into SOI, the School of Infantry. How'd you do on the week that you had off? Oh, man, I was out just going (laughs) crazy, right? (laughs) So... I came back, um, went to SOI, completed that, and that was in Camp Pendleton. And then from there, I was assigned to 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Um, I was with Kilo Company, and with 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, essentially you have Kilo Company, India Company, Lehman Company, and Weapons. So we're all together with 3rd Battalion. That's where we go when we ever deploy. We're... The whole battalion yeah, deployed the together. Bat- exactly. <clears throat> so um, I remember uh, getting graduating the School of Infantry, getting assigned um, to my uh, to my unit, my company, thinking like, all right, I'm one of you guys. Well, now you're considered a boot, a new Marine, right? So I remember it, uh, me with all the other boots. We walk in and... Um, the way the barracks was set up, it was, from what I remember, is you had, like, a basketball court, and then the barracks were set up, like, almost like a U, right, and then a yeah. catwalk outside, and uh, so when we were assigned to our company, we get, we we all line up on the basketball court, and so, like, all the senior Marines could see us, you know, and we're thinking, oh, okay, we're, we're brothers now, and that wasn't the case, they're like, you fucking boots <laughs> you know what i mean it was like you're going to prison you're like what yeah the hell <laughs> i'm one of you guys <laughs> we're friends man we all got to do yeah. this together uh, so uh and then hazing was a big part at that point so um what I, was like a, what was a boots duties like what did you have to do like what was the things that you guys had to do i'm guessing the boot did everything and the other guys kind of yeah it was well <clears throat> as a boot as a new marine right so um, within the platoon, right? So you're assigned to a platoon with. So I'm with Kilo Company. Kilo Company has. If I'm, it's been a while. It's been almost 20 years. Three platoons, and then each platoon has uh, four fire teams. Fire teams set up in four. So you have a saw gunner, or you have fire team leader, point man, saw gunner, and. One more rifleman, if I'm not mistaken. Like, that carries an M16 at the time. That's So we had the fire team leader carried a um, 206, the grenade launcher deal that's attached to the M16. Mm-hmm. Then you had your point man who carried an M16. Then you had an additional Marine that was just, you just had an M16, and then you had the saw gunner, which was set up to lay suppression against the enemy so we can bound up, right? So 
um, when I was assigned to my uh, fire team, I was the new Marine, so I got the 249 saw, and I was big at the time. I was strong. So um, I carried that. Uh, Did nobody want to carry it? Oh, it was hell heavy. no. It was, heavy. <laughs> it, was, it was heavy. How so, much do you think it weighed? Oh, man. I don't remember. It was more, it wasn't necessarily the saw that was heavy. It was the fact that you had to carry the saw. Then you had to carry an extra barrel, an A-bag, they call it. And then if we were combat ready, then I had a drum, a 200-round drum. Oh, that's probably super the, heavy. To the saw with three drums of ammunition. So they'd put that drum into like a little pouch. Three of them, you'd carry them. That's, yeah, that's what made that's it super heavy. heavy. And then you had your pack, your vest. But uh, so no, when I was when I went to third time fifth Marines with all the the other new Marines, I remember my captain who was uh, he was a good guy. But back then, you know, hazing was allowed. It wasn't supposed to be, but it was. <laughs> you just did what you you know everyone did it and went through it. And uh, I remember him saying for our first weekend out. For that we would call Liberty, right? So you would um, fall into formation before Liberty, uh, Friday evening, and they would tell you, you know, make sure you don't go to don't jail. get married, <laughs> yeah, don't do anything stupid, wear a condom, you know, just all that stuff. And I remember them saying, like, all right, now all you senior Marines, don't haze the boots too much. We need them. <laughs> I'm like, Mother. You know, yeah. so, and it, the game was on, you know, so we would get uh, assigned a room in the barracks. We had a roommate, and um, me and my roommate, I remember the new Marines came in, they're drinking, drunk. They would make us, we would call it field day, so we would have to clean everything spotless, and then a couple hours later, they would go and... You know, check, like, underneath the bed that no one would ever check, and they would find, like, um, a little bit of dust or something like that. Like, nope, do it again. So we're out all night, and then they'd make us go on runs up this hill. So we had this – I'm pretty sure that was the hill they called Mount Motherfucker. (laughs) 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 And uh, we'd go up that hill and then come back down, you know. It's just – yeah, a bunch of bullshit, but everyone had to do it. So, um, so they would do this after you guys were all like, you guys would go out, get liquored up, and then come back, and then they would make you check everything. Oh no, we were sober. They were oh. get drunk. Oh, they, they were in their rooms getting drunk. <laughs> they'd make us go and run, clean our barrack, <laughs> our room, and stuff. Oh, you know, okay, that makes sense. That was the hazing, right? Yeah. So um, that was for about two thousand two, about a, probably a year, and then we actually got deployed to. Um, Okinawa, Japan. Um, so when we went there, it was a six, seven month deployment. Um, the new Marines, me still being technically a new Marine. And I think there was 12 others that were new Marines. Uh, we had to draw straws to see who would stay in Okinawa while the other new Marines, while the the battalion would actually go to on a ship and they would um go, I forgot what um that was called but they would um deploy to basically um Singapore, Bangkok, Thailand. So you had like a Westpac where you go to like Australia and yeah. then there was another one. Mm-hmm. 
you go, they went to Singapore, Thailand, Philippines, Bangkok. So my dad was in the Navy and that's his ship just drove Marines around. Yeah. Then the, he went to, you know, Philippines. He went right. to all those Asian countries. Well, I drew the short straw. And uh, so I had to stay while they... Got to go have fun. Go, go have fun, right? And um, I stayed. We call it the Rock. And uh, I was it was day on, day off. I was providing. I was basically um, security guard. I would man the gate, you know, and uh, just check cards and let people come and go. And it was day on, day off for almost seven months. Oh, man. So <clears throat> that's when my drinking really got bad. So um, I started drinking... Every other day, like every day that I was off, right? And I was getting in fights all the time. And I remember um, in high school, I was like, I was always scared to like punch someone in the face without a boxing glove or something. And I remember in the Marine Corps, I was with a fellow Marine and I remember we were drunk and I ended up punching this guy in the face. Um, I think I knocked him out. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, this is easy. <laughs> so then it was, like, all the time. Yeah. Like, I was always starting fights, you know. And uh, luckily I was uh, – I had some, uh, by the again, by the grace of God, like I had some senior Marines that looked, looked out for me in that sense, you know. And um, so, go ahead. What would be, like, did you ever get in trouble? So when we came back, I did one time. And then, uh, so when my unit came back from their deployment, when I was, when they went back to mm-hmm. um, Okinawa, <clears throat> I remember I was so happy to see my, my fellow Marines, you know, they came back and we went out and got all screwed up. And uh, me and a friend of mine had this bright idea to start a fight with one of the other companies within our unit. And in Okinawa, so I told you that the barracks um, in Camp Pendleton, it was a catwalk outside. I think it was two, three stories. And, you know, you had the railing and you can look out, you know, look at the basketball court. Well, in Okinawa, everything was inside. So we had this, everyone would eat after they drank. It was called taco rice and cheese. It was right outside base you know it was very greasy and um one of my buddies <clears throat> when we went into the barracks where my um where kilo company was where my company um i don't know if one of the marines said something like hey that's my shirt so i don't know something stupid petty but then my buddy punched him in the face <laughs> and then another friend co- tried to come in or one of his buddies came in and tried to beat up my friend and i end up punching him and then another guy comes out, and then another Marine from our, our our platoon comes out. Next thing you know, the fight's on. There's like 60 people, 60 Marines just beating each other up. <laughs> Taco rice and cheese is everywhere. It's like an ice skating rink. And um, so my gunnery sergeant at the time, uh, he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> and uh, instead of, he was like old school. So instead of like getting us in trouble, he knew we were all drunk. He's like. All right, everyone get your PT gear on. We're going to run. Oh, so we man. had to go on like a five, five, six-mile run. We're throwing up. 
can't. I mean, it was horrible. It was horrible, but we learned our lesson. Yeah, you know. So that was kind of how we settled manners. Matters back then. I heard it's a little different now. I'm not sure, you know. Yeah. But I heard that it you know probably you is probably yeah. is very different now. So um, anyway, we go back to the states. Um, at this point, like, what's the overall national like? What's going on in the world? Is it, this at is this like point two, nothing? Two thousand and what? So nine um, eleven was that two thousand two? Two thousand and one. Is that okay? So I signed right. up. Two thousand and one. So I signed up in two thousand. So with a little over a year, we were deployed to Okinawa in Japan. When we came back, everything was good. It was when. Um, that's funny you said that because I'm going to lead up to that. No, everything's peaceful. Like, I'm nothing, nothing to report, like anything crazy. Yeah. We get back to the States, and then we, um, uh, I think it was a couple times a month, we would do our uh, training out in the field. And then when 9-11 happened. Did you go back to California when you came back? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So, yeah, no, it's fine. So that was my permanent station. Yeah. So for that four years, I was... Station at Camp Pendleton, and then I would deploy, and we go out from there. Okay. So when I came back to Camp Pendleton, um, like a few months later, I, 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 um, the time frame's kind of foggy, but we came back. There was a period of time. Everything was fine. Then we resumed our training out in the field. So basically, we would go out and shoot shit and, you know, um, just kind of prepare for battle, right? Yeah. Like, just train for war. And then uh, that's when 9-11 happened. Was your role always the same through the whole time, too? No, no, no. So, at this point, I'm a saw gunner. Um, they called us from our um, training out in the field. Um, it was our captain or lieutenant colonel. Anyway, they, the whole unit, they called in the whole, uh, the whole unit. And they said, all right, get, you know, prepare for going to war. Um, they bring us back. I look, and then I see on TV, like, 9-11. I'm like, holy shit. Like, we knew that it was time. But they were very um, secretive about it because they didn't want, I don't know if they didn't want the word getting out or whatever, but um, we didn't know when we were going. We just knew that we were going to go. And a short time after that, we went out drinking. I went to... Uh, Riverside, California. I think I was talking to you earlier about Yeah, that. there was Riverside. an officer involved shooting in Riverside, yeah. California. Somebody reached out to me. So we went to some club down there. That was probably the most sober I've been when I was drinking in the Marine Corps. And the cop pulls me over for, I don't know if it was like I didn't have my lights on or whatever. I was leaving the gas station. And um, I uh, failed to field sobriety at DWI. <laughs> was arrested. Um... They uh, towed my car, and um, how fucked up my mind was at the time was um, my buddy got my car out of the tow yard, and when I was released from jail from an EWI, I took my car, and we went back out and drank. You know, so it's I didn't care. I was literally like, I mean, me and all of the Marines I was with, you know, because, like, you're... <clears throat> it's not like law enforcement in a sense to where you're out there, like you're training, like you're, you're training to kill. Right. Yeah. So you're doing a lot. You're with a bunch of alpha males who, 
they want to fight, they want to do stupid shit. And um, so anyway, I get the DWI um, like a couple months later. Um, within like a matter of a couple hours, they said, all right, get your stuff. We're, we're leaving. So we, uh, they should give you a couple hours to get everything together. Yeah. It was, did you have any short. notice that you guys were leaving? No, really? No, it was like, that's what I'm saying. They're being very secretive about it. I didn't know if they just didn't want the word to get out. So, um, <clears throat> do you think the DWI and that night of like going out and drinking after you guys found out that you're going to war, like, did that have anything to do with it? Like finding out like, huh? All right, we're about to go to war. No. No. That was you know, if if I'm gonna be honest, no. Yeah. Because I was not uh I was very immature and with my uh family life and all that, you know, it was just I found a bunch of Marines who drank like me, who did stupid shit like me. But we were all very good and out in the field and in combat. You know, that's when you can rely on us. But when we were in the States, we were trouble, right? So um, <clears throat> anyway, we deployed uh, Kuwait. We're there for a few months. And then again, you know, we don't know when um, the invasion, like when Bush is going to declare war. But we know it's going to happen. And uh, so we're right at the border of Kuwait and Iraq. And um, uh, we drove uh, Marines we would ride in, uh, they call them Amtraks. You know what that is? I think so, yeah. Uh, amphibious motor vehicle with yeah. the track. So it goes from uh, essentially from sea to land. That's what it's yeah. designed for. So like back in like World War II or whatever, you see those. Like beaches of Normandy type vehicle. Correct. Yeah. And they're just more advanced now, right? Yeah. So they basically drop in from the ship. Then they go onto the land. Yeah, that's what my dad's ship did. It came yeah. around those things. Yeah, exactly. Um, real quick, mm. before we move on. Uh, are you still in contact with your family at home? Yes. Do you remember making the phone call to them saying, like, hey, I'm getting deployed and we're going to war? <clears throat> no. I just remember because we didn't know we were going to war at the time. We were going to Kuwait. So Bush didn't declare war. And at the time... Like when we were over in Kuwait, we didn't have cell phones. There was one phone that was like like this big, you know, like back in the old days, you know. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so, no, I don't remember making that phone call. Um, we I wrote a lot of letters at the time. But, um, no. So, anyway, I'm in Kuwait. And um, out of nowhere... They say, okay, we're going to war. And next thing you know, we load up in our Amtrak. And uh, you can't see unless you're one of the Marines that are, like, looking out for surveillance, you know, observing everything. Other than that, you're stuck in this track, right? But I remember it was, like, gave me, like, goosebumps. You just hear, they're just bombing the hell out of Iraq, right? And that went on for hours and hours. Really? Yes. And then finally, we invade. We right. go in. And um, I think I remember watching videos of that where it's just like, I think they had cameras over the top, and it was just bomb after bomb after bomb. Oh, after man. Bomb after bomb. And if I'm not mistaken, like, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, at one point, like, we were the actual tip of the spear. Really? And during the invasion, yeah. 
And so um, <clears throat> the scariest time was not even when I was in a firefight. It was the unknown. So this is, let's see, I signed up. I joined the Marines when I was 19 years old. So I must have been maybe 21 at this time. <clears throat> and uh, I remember we invade, we're driving. Next thing you know, they stop, like the Amtrak stops. The back ramp opens. And because I'm the saw gunner, I'm the first one. I have to get out of there. Really? Yeah, so I'm the first one to run out of the, the vehicle, get in the prone to get ready to lay suppression so the other Marines yeah. can go. So I remember when that ramp dropped, I did. I, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. And then I remember running out like, don't shoot me, motherfucker. <laughs> dropping the phone. But at that point, everyone surrendered, right? So it yeah. was like, uh, uh, it was it was nothing. So were you actually in contact with people when you, like, when you guys unloaded? Were there people that you guys were coming in contact with? Like Iraqis? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're just surrendering? Yes. Surrendering left and right. Really? Like, it made it very, very easy. And then, um, <clears throat> at one point, during our invasion, we engage um, enemy fire. And um, there was, all I remember, this is so long ago, because this wasn't one of the big ones, was um, we were near this creek bed, and we're trying to go through. And um, <clears throat> at this point, um, we're, we're low. We get assigned some more new Marines. Now, these are, like, equivalent to, like, my boots. Now. We're low from what? Uh, with Marines. We needed more Marines. So we had it. We there was like five, I think, Marines that um, were assigned to our platoon, and one of the Marines was given a two forty nine saw. Little guy should never had it. And um, <clears throat> hey, bro, us little guys can do things. Too. No, no, like he was <laughs> he was a thin guy, right? You're you're little, but you're strong. He was not. But um, anyway, I remember when he. Um, I don't know if his saw jammed because back then we weren't we didn't know that um, you could put like you you shouldn't put so much lube on your weapon when you're in sand yeah, right yeah, yeah. when you're out in the desert right because it'll just jam up. Well, in this case, his weapon jammed up, and with a saw, it's kind of like you rack it back. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, he was trying to wreck back. It kept locking up. And uh, some of the scene Marines were yelling at him to fire that weapon. And he's freaking out. So what he does is uh, he sets the butt of the gun on the ground, puts his hand on top of the barrel, and starts trying to kickstart. Kickstart it back, you know what I mean? So when he did that, it went off. Shot him in the hand? Shot him in the hand, but not only that, because those rounds tumble. So it went through his hand, and then it came out. The design to tumble, I guess? Yes. And then uh. it came out um, right near his elbow and tricep area. No way. Yeah. That was my first time I saw someone, like, get shot. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> and uh, anyway, you know, let's ship him back. Um, he had, like, surgery, like, his hands. When I, when I came back, like, his... Um, 
he that's had a no big function. round to take like that. Yes. Like, well, right it was a five, five, six. Yeah. Yeah. But that close, you know, like. Oh, yeah, I know. Goodness. A direct so contact. much velocity. Yeah. All the gas escaping. Yes. Straight and it was tumbling. Oh. So it did a lot of damage. And um, <clears throat> there was a couple other little minor um, um, where we were engaged in, like, firefights where I remember at one time. So my staff sergeant, uh, Staff Sergeant Tejada, he was a, if not, he was Puerto Rican from New York. He was a younger guy, very smart, but uh, he was a hard ass. And he would talk like, he talked like this, you know? Yeah. And then I remember because it was like me and um, my, me and my close friends, we were like the alpha males at the time, you know, we were strongest. And he's like, uh, he's like, can you kill someone with your bare hands? <laughs> and we're looking like, oh my gosh, like, this fucking pussy. Like, you know, the only reason why he's saying this is because he's a staff sergeant. But um, anyway, we were getting, we engaged in a firefight and my saw jam. And I remember a round fucking hitting the rock in front of me. Like, it's just ding. And so now I'm like taking the part and my staff sergeant's like yelling at me. He's like, fire, fire. And I'm, you know, I've had a couple of years now in the Marines. And I'm like, staff sergeant. I was like, don't you think I'm trying to fucking fire my weapon? <laughs> and I'm taking it apart in front of him, right? You know, and put it back together and then I re-engage. And uh, anyway, I'm going to lead into this because he ends up being one of the, one of the bravest Marines I've ever met. Really? So all that talk was true he was a badass yeah so um <clears throat> fast forward and um now bush uh i think he ceasefire claire ceasefire you guys moved pretty quick right yeah i mean it was like quick it was swift at the time like everyone's getting uh like giving up every now and then we would get in minor firefights like um the one i told you were um around hit the rock in front of yeah. me we engaged um, once I got it working, I laid suppression. There was, I don't know, a dozen Iraqis. They ran in this house. And I remember that house just getting blown to bits. From artillery or from? No, it wasn't was it from, from artillery. It, I think it was from a, a Cobra, if I'm not mistaken. It came Co- down just a helicopter. Really? Yeah. And so. Um, How well could those, like, walls like the like those that type of wall. I don't even know what that material is, but like those. Oh, like, like the mud. Yeah. How how well would it stop around? Yeah, no, I don't know because um, at the time I didn't. So the Marines after me. That's why like I always, I was I felt at first a little bit uncomfortable about doing this with you mm-hmm. because the Marines that ended up staying in after me, they got hit the hardest. Yeah. So they actually, they were in Fallujah, and they were having to go from building to building. So they would have a lot more experience with that. I didn't have much experience with that. Mine was like we invaded, everyone surrendered. Um, Then right after we ceased fire, it was like a day or two after that, um, my platoon, I think, was the only one that sustained casualties at the time out there, time Fifth Marines. We were doing a routine patrol, and it was night, and I was at the very rear 
So you had your fire teams, you know, we were all um, split up, you know, we're tactically moving up, doing our patrol, no big deal. And then I remember a close friend of mine, Kenny, who was the radio operator at the time, and uh, the point man who was in front of our, the, the tip of our um, platoon. There's a wall on the side of us. He sees a bunch of Iraqis with AK-47s getting out, and, like, they're going against that wall. And um, he lets our, I think it was our lieutenant staff sergeant at the time, but um, we were told, you know, just continue our patrol, right? <clears throat> and then next thing, you know, I'm in the rear, but mind you, this isn't like, we're not that far apart. Right? Was it's it like uncommon? Would it be common for that to happen? Like guys on getting out with AK-47s? That was uncommon, but it, I... <sighs> Again, it's so long ago, and I was only a saw gunner at the time, so I don't want to say something that's incorrect, but from my understanding, it was because we ceased fire, and they didn't engage on us. Mm-hmm. And um, so we didn't we didn't act, and we continued our um, patrol, and then next thing you know, they just opened up on us. And it they had tracer rounds. It almost looked like Star Wars. So they're firing at us. We fire back. And it's just, I'm here, like, I see, like, the bullets are just, like, right next to me, right? And so I go back, and then I start engaging the enemy, right? I turn my weapon, look at them, but I'm rear. So I have to, you know what I mean? Because we can't get ambushed, right? So even though I'm getting fired, I went back, but I went back and pointed my uh, weapon to the rear. And I remember there was this... um, Big truck that comes in, and he's like, and I just open fire on that thing. I don't know if he's, what his objective, we told him to stop, he didn't stop. But open fire up on that. And um, Is this day or night? This is night. Yeah, this is all night. This is why you can see the the tracer ride. It's just clear as day. And I remember my staff sergeant, he was the first one. So the way the Marines are designed to do, when we engage fire, you engage back. The 249 saw lays the suppression, but the Marines with the M16s, now we're bounding up. So we go straight toward the, the fire, right? And I was actually impressed because we actually, for most of us, some did not, some froze, but the mass majority of us immediately bounded up and laid fire. And my staff sergeant, who talked like this, yeah, he's like this fucking pussy. <laughs> he was the first one to bound up, and he's yelling at everyone. He gets hit. Um, he dies immediately. Oh, um, one of my uh, fellow Marines who I was in the SOI with, his name was Owens or Owen, and um, <clears throat> he was also a saw gunner for his fire team. He takes a shot right in his Cavalier. I think it went up and ricocheted. Well, he drops. Um, we eliminate the enemy. They're calling for a corpsman to help him out. The staff sergeant, um, he died. And um, I ran over there. I can see him. Now, being in law enforcement... 
I'm pretty sure it was that agnal brain that, you know what I mean? Yeah, like gasping. Yes. I didn't know that at the time. Like where your bo- it's almost like your body is like, knows that it's supposed to be breathing, but yes. everything else is messed up. Right. You know? So he's breathing like that. And um, I grab, uh, let's see, I have my saw, I sling it. I grab one of his legs. Another Marine grabs the legs. And then two other Marines grabs his arm. Um, a cobra comes down. So the radio operator, he calls in a cobra. Um, he comes, gets the staff sergeant, and gets the Marine. Uh, we find out the next day that the Marine who got shot in the cavalry, he died. Really? So, yeah. So it shot in his helmet pretty much? Yeah, and, like, ricocheted. Wrapped around it? Yeah. Man. I know. It's like a one in a million shot. Mm-hmm. But that was like, um, so like my buddies who had uh, had to stay. So when we came back, um, uh, based on your, um, I guess your EAS, when you were supposed to get out, um, I was like two weeks away to where I didn't get stop lost, and the Marines who I who signed up around the same time I did, who I was very close to, they were two weeks after me, and they had to stay. And um, a buddy of mine who I still talk to all the time, the radio operator, he lives in Texas. Um, He went to Fallujah, and he said that was like nothing he's ever experienced. But he said that firefight that that we had, the initial one that I was talking Mm -hmm. to, he said that was the worst nighttime firefight he's ever experienced. But, um, yeah, so let's take a step back though real quick. Yeah. Um, how old are you at this mm, point? 20, 20, 21, 2021. Yeah. Um, so you guys get, you guys pretty much get ambushed. Yes. You get attacked from two different directions. Uh, no, just one direction for that one. Okay. So the truck came in the same direction that the dudes were shooting at you from. No, the truck came. I don't know. I can't say for certain that it was part of them. Okay. What I can't say is we told him to stop and he did not stop. Okay. Okay. But the vast majority of the gunfire was coming from those. It was coming from one direction. Okay. Yes. Makes sense now. From one side. So um, you had a wall. They're against that wall for, you know, their cover. Cover. They start just laying rounds at us. As that's happening, there's a truck from like Caddy Corner toward the rear that's driving up. Uh, one of the Marines, one of the Marines gets up, tells him to stop. He doesn't stop. So, okay. So you guys yeah. engage. Yeah. Um, you said the Puerto Rican guy, what was his name again? Staff Sergeant Tejada. Tejada. Mm-hmm. So Tejada gets up and he starts bounding towards yes. the guys on the wall. Yes. He's the first dude to do that. First dude. First of all, that's awesome. But, um, in your job in that, in that, uh, in your position is to lay down suppressive fire. Lay down suppression, but I'm holding security for the rear. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. So I'm responsible for the rear. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking fire because, like I said. What's that like? What's what's it like getting shot from some direction that you can't look at? Well, no, I did look at it. And I, <laughs> and I, I laid fire. Yeah. But I stopped and yeah. realized that, oh, shit. Like, I have to, I'm responsible for the rear. Yeah. And so they don't. How know, hard was it to, to make that decision? Man, dude, I, um, well, for one, it was a long time ago, and um, we'll, uh, 
at the time, it felt like it was just a video game. Really? And also, it did not affect me at that time because um, <clears throat> when I was getting fights and all this stuff, my it was not because I was some badass. It was because I had a very low self-esteem. And I hated myself at the time. And I think that that kind of helped me in war because at that point in my life, I didn't care if I lived or died. So it really didn't. At that point, you know. That's a dangerous man. You know what I mean? Well, it's a dangerous, a stupid man. But yes, (laughs) it's a dangerous man. Because, I mean, you know me now. There's a lot of, I have a lot of things to lose now in my life. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, so... Do you want me to? I, I just want to break down that whole firefight sure. real quick. Um, so, first off, what was it? Was that the first time you'd ever seen a dead person in your entire life? Was no, no, no. It was ever the first time that we engaged and we saw dead people. Okay, but as far as like during the invasion, yeah, no, they were blowing shit up, and there was one that was. Um, uh, this is a very sad story, but um, we would set up. So, like, when we go to sleep, you know, um, it was designed. So when we invaded, we were scared of, like, um, what is that called? The, um, the poison gas that we thought they had. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm sure most people will know what you're talking about, too. I do know what you're talking about, but I don't remember the name of it. So we had our suits thinking we were going to get gassed. Right? So we're fully suited up. So we have our combat gear, but then we also have our, what is it, the mop suits? You with it all the time? Just for a couple months, the first couple months. Like 24-7? Yes, 24-7. Because we're going to get gas. <laughs> talking about mustard gas? No, not mustard gas. What was it? Uh, I can't remember. I know what you're talking about. Because it was about, the whole though. point of It was us. like a weapon of mass destruction that yes. they said he was using on his own people, Correct. and I can't remember the name of yes. it. It's going to drive me insane. I'm gonna that was like one of the main reasons why we went. Minutes. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, so we had our, um, what was it, the mop, the mop suits? or Anyway, we're all suited up, right? It's like Tyvek. Yeah. These, these big old suits, you know, on top of our combat gear. And um, we had our gas mask on. And, yeah, we did that for the first couple months. Really? Yeah, All but yeah, but um, going back to that, um, so it wasn't, so we would set up our perimeter, right? One Marine was up, another Marine was sleeping. <clears throat> and it wasn't uncommon for Iraqis to try to invade that perimeter and get shot up because we also have our Amtraks that have... Um, 40 caliber, it's a 40 caliber, and um, is it a Mark 19 attached to it? But they would just light them up. They would tell them to halt. They went halt, and they'd light them up. And one time, there was a family that got lit up. No way. Yeah. So that was, I know, I experienced that. What was that like? (sighs) That was bad. It was, you know. Like in your 20-year-old brain, what were you thinking? I was thinking, like, holy shit, I can't believe this is happening. You know? The only time I cried was when my um, buddy, uh, Dave Owen, when he was the saw gunner, the one that died, and we found out that was the only time I cried. during the, the You mean the helmet guy? Yeah. 
That was your friend? Yep. Yeah, very close friend. I guess that's really what I'm asking is, like, what was the atmosphere around, like, so you guys get in this giant firefight, right? Mm-hmm. And then you know, like, dudes that you're close to are injured or, and you know, or dead. Like, yeah. What's the atmosphere like that night? And what? how did you process that? Like, oh, man. So I didn't process it too well. So um, there was a new Marine that was, and I regret this to this day, and I'm not going to say his name. Because I don't want to embarrass him, but um, he was asking about Firewatch. Like, he was brand new Marine. He had these uh, glasses on we call BCs, birth control glasses. Right. I had them as well. (laughs) Did you really? Yeah, I did. (laughs) I'm blind as a bat. But I remember him asking something, and I was so pissed that I punched him right in the face, and I broke his glasses. And uh, this day I feel bad about it. Like, I just, because if anyone that knows me now, like, like I was a, you know, going into law enforcement, being a field trainer, like that's not how I operate because I know that like um, trying to scare someone to do something doesn't work, yeah. especially when you're relying on that person. Mm-hmm. But as a 20 year old, 21 year old, it's, and that's how I was taught. Yeah. So I have a lot of regrets for that, but no, to answer your question, no, I was, I was a mess that night. Really? Yeah. Did, I guess, was there any way, that did they give you any way of processing it? Like, were you guys no, this was helped new to everyone. in the process of like, hey, let's, you know, like you just lost some dude. And then I guess, what was the, what what did you guys do the next day? Was it just right back on the grind? Yeah, it's back, back to the thing? Yeah. We're in, we're in a foreign country. We don't have time to. Yeah. It's not like here, so I, that's funny you said that because in combat, I've always thought if you compare it to law enforcement, I would tell my uh, fellow Marines that for me, my first few years as a police officer, especially like with the Ferguson effect, it's a lot more challenging because you have to show a tremendous amount of restraint, more so than what a reasonable person would do. Yeah, Regardless of what anyone says, everyone knows that's true. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you just yeah. have to do it. Yeah. That's our responsibility. Yeah. And whereas when you're over in combat, it's you and your brothers. It's us for the first time. You don't have to worry about the prosecutors trying to get you um, appeasing citizens, appeasing police department to hire. You know, you just you're hit from all different angles. Like, for instance, like a St. Louis County cop. Right. You know, or St. Louis City. They deal with a lot of stress mentally. When that is not necessarily like being scared of being shot, it's being scared of making the wrong decision. Yeah. Which, you know, in your experience, we talked about that when I spoke to you about your incident, you know? Yeah. I didn't have to experience that. Yeah. You know, it's it's weird that you say that because Dan, same thing in the first invasion of Fallujah, if you ask him today what he thought, I don't want to say in general, like what he thought was more difficult because I know that he went through a lot there, you Mm -hmm. know, and I know that he experienced a lot there. But he says, like, the just the overall stress of law enforcement in general is harder. 100%. That's what I think. What do you attribute it to? Just, like, administration, just oversight? Yeah, so it's like because you don't want to make the wrong decision. And um, 
when you're dealing with like um, criminals or people who don't want to get arrested, they're going to try to goat you into doing something that you don't want to do. And everyone, like I talk to like brand new officers that I feel trained, I don't care who you are. You could be the most disciplined police officer. Everyone has that oh shit moment where for their moral, their morality or uh, moral compass, we'll say, they cross the line to the point like to where they, I'm not saying that they use excessive force, but for them, they went overboard. Someone yeah. pushed their buttons. Yeah. And it's up to a fellow police officer to stop that. You got to have a police officer that's not, um, um, they don't have, um, they weren't affected personally, right? Like uh, uh, an assisting officer who comes. Yeah. He's got to acknowledge that and not be scared like, oh, I got to take this report, right? No, he's got to take over that. I've done it. People, cop police officers have done it for me. But I want to get into, because right now it looks like my life is just a fucking nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm yeah. sorry for cussing on, your, no, you're fine, on your show. So, because I really have to hit this home, because right now I was... Before uh, we get there, yeah. let's finish up your time in, uh, in Iraq. Go ahead. So, you, uh, you're involved in that firefight. Um, you lose two of your guys. Mm -hmm. How much more time did you have in Iraq? And Six or that, seven months. <laughs> and did though that incident, did it change the way that you viewed the rest of your time in Iraq? No, it's, no, not at the point. I mean, it was back to normal business as usual. And then, um, like, um, we would eventually, like, once we, like, took over Iraq, then we start setting, like, um, bases up within the country, you know, and, um, no. At that time, no, but it, it's not like, it's almost like, um, Survival of fittest. Yeah, you're just you too busy. You're just too busy to deal with Correct. it. Correct. Makes sense. Yeah. I could I could see that. I really could. I could see like tomorrow's a new day. I got six more months. I'm let's go. You know. But I'll tell you what, dude. That's not. I, I'm gonna. Well, go on. Answer answer your questions, or ask your questions. I don't have any more. I'm just saying. Okay. Um, so you're there for six more months, and then that's not what affected me the most, though. What do you mean? That's what I'm getting at. So what affects me is, like, you know how I am in law enforcement or criminal investigator. I am extremely hyper-focused yeah. on a, on my objective and accomplishing the mission, right? Yeah. I didn't have that. So, like, when we're going back to the Marine Corps, I was – so I, I tell people they probably wouldn't have recognized me because I was a very immature kid who was very selfish – had uh, nothing to lose with a low self-esteem. Um, I didn't get it, right? So we come back from Iraq. Um, eventually, I get honorably discharged. You look at my DD-214, looks like I'm like some war hero, and I'm not. I was like, in my mind, I'm just like a fucking train wreck. And um, I get out, and um, that's when shit just fucking goes crazy that's where i'm like getting in fights all the time as a civilian and um my at this point my mom and dad they're now separated my mom finds someone else um my stepdad who's now deceased but he turned out to be a great guy 
he um, got me a job. He was uh, owned a carpenter. Uh, he was a carpenter, right? Yeah, a little company. Um, got me hired on, and I would not have been working if it wasn't for him. Um, I end up uh, meeting my ex. Um, she had a very addictive personality. She wasn't responsible at the time. Um, we had a child. We decided to have another kid. Things were a mess between us. And it's not her fault. It was my fault as well. And um, I'm just, I end up getting laid off, getting my electric turned off, my um, my truck repossessed. Not the pride, but what do you think are like, what's leading to all this? Like, what do you think is leading to all of the, <clears throat> like all this stuff that, that you're talking about, it's like, <clears throat> you get out, you're like, I wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for my stepdad and my life is a mess and I'm, you know, like, what what do you think not now looking back at this time mm-hmm. in your life what what was missing like you said you're you had a low self esteem i will tell you exactly so when i grew up so even though my dad was i hate talking about my father like this because now he's my best friend he hasn't yeah. drank in years he yeah. like sponsors people and all that like he's like like just a great person my mom too you know so but um <clears throat> so i grew up um, you know, I went to Corpus Christi. We go to church, right? And my family, my dad had nine brothers. Um, my grandparents lived in Jennings at the time when I was a small child. And um, there was a, we had like a family priest. Um, my faith, uh, you know how like when you're a kid and then um, you're taught God going to church, you just think that things are going to work out. Like, when you believe in God, you just think that yeah. things will work itself out. Yeah. When things got bad for me, I slowly lose my, lost my faith, where I just did not believe in anything. And um, it just was one bad thing after another. And um, <clears throat> it wasn't... Um, so I got to fix this, right? So... Let me let me go back to this. Yeah, right? dude, you're good. We're just having a conversation. So, you know, I'm, I'm my gas is turned off, electric turned off, truck repossessed. Uh, we get an eviction notice for the apartment. Um, I end up uh, my uncle who was uh, worked for Jennings Public Works. Um, he gets me on the street department. Um. I'm not I'm not drinking as much as I used to. I'm saving it for the weekends. But um I'm starting to get things settled, but I'm only making like twenty six, twenty seven thousand a year. Yeah. Like working there. <clears throat> and um I start meeting the police officers at Jennings and um I meet them. They're like, Hey, sometimes we hire police officers within. Well, I, I didn't even really like law enforcement at the time, but I like them. So I start looking into it. I was like, you know what? Um, I don't know. Maybe this will be something. But, again, like, I did so much shit, like, as far as, like, who am I to be a police officer? I mean, I may not have be, like, a convicted felon or anything like that, but I just, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but you could have been. You could have, <laughs> sure. And uh, so, anyway, I uh, ended up putting my application in. Um, I went in front of their board. Um, I just tried to sell myself. 
um, they needed officers anyway because it was Jennings. So they sponsored me, took me through the academy. Really? Yeah. So um, I went and uh, St. Louis County ends up taking over. At that point, I'm living with the mother of my two kids. She has like 10 or 12 active warrants for arrest for like misdemeanors. <laughs> and uh, if, when things are not our relationship, we know, we both know that it's only a matter of time. We're now like bind because we need our, our income to survive. Makes sense. And uh, so uh, St. Louis County, they do a background on me. I have very... Um, at this point, I'm a police officer for 10 months. So I graduate the academy. I get field trained. I go on the road. And then a short time later, within 10 months, St. Louis County comes and takes over. So I go through their process. And um, I pass the polygraph, the written test, all the stuff, right? And I get to the final board. And she didn't, you know, I'm saying, hey, you know, I'm... Basically, like, it's like, uh, from what I was told, when you go to the, uh, what is it, the oral, the commander's board or whatever. Yeah. It's essentially saying, hey, congratulations, we're hiring you, you passed everything. In my case, that was not. Really? They said, uh, yeah, you're living with someone who's got active warrants for the arrest. Like, we can't justify hiring you when you're living. And, I, you know, I tried to explain myself, and um, <clears throat> they weren't having it, so... Um, they said reapply in six months. So that day, I drove home. I um, took my two kids and I left her. I lived with my aunt, and uh, she lived at Jennings. I lived in her basement, and then my mom at this point, because I said she separated from my father yeah. in an apartment, so I would bounce back and forth. I'd take my kids there, the Highland, and just back and forth while I would just keep putting out applications, right? And then eventually Overland. It's pretty interesting you say all this about your, your life, though, because a lot of times people think cops have everything together. You know what I mean? Like they have everything together. They've never had a difficult point ever in their life. Like we get it all the time on the road. Like you wouldn't understand. Like you don't oh, understand. Oh, yeah, no. But, like you don't and understand the things that I've that's been It's funny through. you said that. Is because like I'm just a poor white kid from North County, dude. Right. Like, like, I do understand you way more than you think that I do. That's, um, I'm kind of sidetracking a little bit, but I think that's why I get so many confessions. I think so, too, dude. I think you're just, like, I you're just really genuine. You know what I mean? I think people can see that, and, like, they can recognize that you're, like, a genuine person. It's like, and I feel like it's easier for me sometimes to communicate with criminals. Because I did. I didn't grow up in the best environment. Yeah. I grew up super poor it was nothing for my mom not to be able to pay the bills you know what i mean like we had our lights turned off and we had our food we were eating like peanut butter and jellies for dinner and like you know we didn't have all these nice things our cars backfired we lived in north st louis we got beat up yeah you know what i mean like i so people always think that like cops are like these I came from like this very privileged background and that I've never been through anything in my life. And that, and same thing with you, like you've never been through, you wouldn't understand me. And sometimes I find it easier to talk to criminals and people that have like a similar upbringing oh, 100%. Than, than to me than it is to talk to like 
like I'm going to go in this meeting with this administrator. You know what I mean? Well, I think with my personal life, you know, with my um, me just being an overall bad person early in my, you know, in my early 20s, right? And um, interacting like I've lived in a predominantly black neighborhood to a predominantly white neighborhood. So I've had the experience to just communicate with various types of people. So I can find common ground with almost anyone. But let me get to my point, right? So I end up getting hired in Overland. Um, <clears throat> I'm still drinking at the time. I'm there for a year. I'm doing all right. The field training officer, he says that, you know, I, I barely graduated high school, so I can't type a report to save my life. And he's like, you are the worst report writer, right? I had my own personal rock bottom when I went out drinking and I went to Pops and I stayed up all night. I got, I, I went there by myself. Um, I took a shot. I fell off the bar stool. The bouncer came and got me or told me to get out, made me get out. You know, I couldn't even walk. So it was not like I could like, I'm not saying that I'm like some like, it wasn't because like, I was too drunk to drive, right? I literally couldn't drive. Like, I couldn't even walk. <laughs> and so my dad comes and gets me, um, and uh, who, you know, who I said was this bad person. Anyway, he got sober. And was he, he sober when he came and yes, got you? Yes, yes. Really? He's the one that got me, and I went to an AA meeting with him, and I started getting involved in that. And uh, anyway... I stopped drinking entirely, right? So I haven't drank in uh, ten, nine years. And um, let's see, how long have I been here? No, 10 years. Because it was a year or two after Overland, I went from being worst report writer, then eventually just kind of learning how to just write average reports, you know, and being an average police officer, I stopped drinking. I filled my void with doing positive things, making myself do stuff to officer of the year. The first. Really? Then I start really getting into, um, you know, making myself stay extra with report writing. I would pick like the best report writers. Like, okay, what are they doing? Until I established my own way of doing my own writing. Yeah. And I remember when I left Overland, to go to Fallon, yeah. One of the captains in Overland said, "I was so mind you, I was the worst report writer. I leave Overland as the best report writer." Really. And then within Overland, so I I told you about football, like skipping, yeah, like to go drink and all this stuff. So I was a quitter, right in my head. That's what I had. So I made myself do guns and hoses, and I remember I was smoking a pack a day at the time, and um, so. I went in there, but was I was that in the back of your head, like as in a, like at this point, you're like 20 something years old. Were you still thinking about like, I'm no, we're fast forwarding now. So maybe so the audience can understand. So from, I joined the Marine Corps from when I was 19, got out when I was 23, a few years of carpentry work, a year of working at the Jennings street department. So by 28, 29, I become a police officer. Okay. So now I'm going into my thirties. Okay, so you're 30-something years old. Are you still thinking back to that Joe that quit football? 
I did with the guns and hoses. I know. And you're, that's what I'm saying is like, well, I'm going to lead up to like that. 15 years later, you're still thinking about oh, yeah, the Joe 100%. used to be. So I remember thinking, because I was strong, and I told you I was getting all these fights, and I remember um, going in there, and I'm like, I got paired up with some guy who I thought I was just going to beat the shit out of. I'm like, look at this guy. You know, I'm just going to walk right through him just because I was strong, right? So I was muscling it, and then I might have did round well the first round. Second round, he just starts piecing me up. Third round, I could barely stand. And I remember leaving that boxing ring thinking, like, I, re- I looked at Tim Tim Burke, who was actually the boxing coach in St. Louis mm-hmm. County. I was like, man, I really suck, huh, Tim? He's like, you don't suck. He's like, you just don't know what you're doing. It's like, dude, keep coming. And uh, I don't know what convinced me to come back, but it was a pride thing. I was like, man, I'm going to do it. So I went from boxing, getting my butt kicked, so toward the end of Guns and Hoses, now I'm the one beating everyone. So yeah. I quit smoking. I start chewing, which I chew now. That's another. <laughs> you know, I don't I can't think that'll ever stop, dude. But uh, I chew, you know. And um, now I'm starting to beat people up. And I remember I get paired up with a firefighter who's like 6'8", six, 6'7". Six, and for the box off, he ends up just beating the heck out of this uh, St. Louis City cop to go to the Guns and Hoses. So that's how they match you up, right? So oh, you really? have this Yeah, so there's like a behind the scenes bracket. Yeah, so you train, you know, you you do your training at uh, I think St. Louis City has a gym, St. Louis County, um Hit Squad now. It didn't at the time because yeah, Ryan Ryan, yeah. He was just starting boxing at the time. So I was actually boxing with him. And he was not he's if anyone knows him now, he's good boxer now, but he wasn't back then. He was just starting. And um, I get paired up with this guy. So we're training. I start out horrible. I work into being, like, good, you know, for my skill level. And then we have a box off. So I have to box someone. Everyone's got to box someone. And then they they rate you based on your skill level. So they try to pair you with someone equal. Competitive? Yeah, to make it competitive. Well, the only one that they could match me up with Per my skill level, was a guy who was like six seven, and uh, I was like, and he just beat the heck out of this guy in the box off, and I was like, all right, all right, yeah, I'll take. Tim's like, all right, you're gonna box him. I'm like, all right. This camera, I don't know if you guys can see, but uh, Joe's like five six, and this dude's like six okay. seven. Yeah. Okay, five seven, almost five nine, <laughs> almost five nine. Yeah, in heels. <laughs> so I. Uh, I get paired up with this guy, Dick, <laughs> and uh, I remember going and like we're like one of the last fights. I'm like, man, and for this guns and hoses match, it's like hours and hours. So you start out when you're competing, thinking like all you know, your anxiety, everything, nerves, going crazy. I'm boxing this guy that's a lot bigger than me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? Well, hours pass because we're we're on one of the last fights, so I go from nervous to like. Holy shit. Like, we gotta get another few hours before I even box. <laughs> so I f- psych myself out. And then, well, anyway, eventually I box. And I'll never forget, like, the first round. Um, he was getting the better of me. It didn't look good. Second round, I think he got overzealous because I caught him, knocked him down. And uh, he gets up. I didn't knock him out, but he gets up. And that changed the whole fight. 
So now he was reluctant to engage with me. I'm the aggressor. I end up winning a decision. And then, um, anyway, that changed my, as far as an athletic perspective, that kind of like, holy shit, like if I put my mind to something, I can do it. Yeah, I think it's more than athletic, right? Like, I think. Well, and that's what I'm going to lead to, right? So now I set goals in my head. So what I do to fill that void, to avoid, like, when you stop drinking or you start out doing, like, engaging, like, say say right now you're a young kid or you're a police officer who's struggling, um, you drink as, as sort of a vice, you know, to cope with, with whatever, right? You have to fill that void with something, whether it's, like, taking, like, spending more time with your family, your kids, friends. You have to fill that void. So what I did was I would constantly, everything that I was nervous of as a kid, I would do. So I told you that at first I was scared to punch a guy in the face. I ended up getting all these fights. Um, I went, I was a quitter, so i do the guns and hoses. And i start boxing off and on for like six years. So i fight an amateur fight, another guns and hoses match. i win those. Um, then I start doing judo. Um, for anyone who doesn't know judo, think of Ronda Rousey UFC. It's throws, submissions. Um, I, f- I figure this is beneficial to law enforcement, right? So I start learning that. Um, I'm just constantly challenged. College is another thing. So this is actually another important thing. So I started out thinking I was a stupid kid who couldn't accomplish anything. So I made myself go back to college Um uh, technically, I'm going into my junior year, and I have a 4.0 average, straight really? A's, right? Where do you think this um, this stupid kid came from? Um, I really think that it was, it goes back to my family life, right? So um, my dad was a mean drunk. My mom used pills to cope with that. Did you just feel unimportant? Yeah, it was just like a... A horrible family life and just no one like um teaching me the right way to do things i didn't know how to live my life and then like not going to school it's like with the report writing of course i'm not going to be able to type a police report like i barely graduated high school because i didn't ever put any effort into it yeah so i don't even know what i could do what i'm capable of yeah. it wasn't until i start challenging myself that I realize that, like, dude, I can do, like, no one's better than me. Yeah. I don't care what, like, if I want to be a doctor, I'm going to work twice as hard to be a doctor. That's just how my mind is wired now. But it was never wired that way. You have to reprogram your mind, and anyone can do it. Yeah. You just got to put it in the work. So now, fast forwarding, so I go from this guy that doesn't, can't do anything to now someone who's, I don't want to say, I don't want to say cocky, but someone who's sure of himself. Like, I'm confident that if you give me an objective, I can do it as good, if not better, than anyone. I think that's something you learn in law enforcement, too. I really do. I think you slowly learn throughout your law enforcement career that the things that you thought were super difficult. Cops are really, really... We're not like... Listen, I know some dumb cops. I'm not saying every cop is the most intelligent person in the world. Um, but I think, like, like, if you gave me a task, like, when I set out to start 1078, when I was mm-hmm. like, I want to do this, like, there's something about that alpha 
type of like the vast majority of cops are alphas there's something about that type of mindset and like it can be really good obviously like you can start an organization like this you can start doing what you're doing you know with your investigative skills and with judo and with boxing and all the other things it can also be really bad if you take that if you don't have somebody like you're my somebody in my life that when I get a little bit too big for my britches a, a phone call from Joe to be like hey man and vice versa maybe check yourself a absolutely bit you know what I mean like yes calm down you know like this isn't yeah. the person that you want to be like you want to be this type of person so maybe let's try that out um but there's something about cops man like you experience a lot of bad things throughout this job but you really realize how resilient you can be as a human you know and you you realize that at least for me it's like i wanted to be a good canine handler so i I just dove into it dude you know like my first dog by the time he retired was a robot you know what i mean yeah and then i get into the shooting and i'm like man i want to change how what the response is to these things like i don't think that we're doing ourselves a service you know what i mean like i don't think we're doing the things that we should be doing for our own community it's like well nobody's changing it so i will like i'll start this thing and i, I feel like there's a lot of connections like you like the way that you are as a person well i think you can find like i said you can find common ground with anyone like take your for instance um you for example right you were an outstanding wrestler in high school you know you had that passion that drive as a freshman which is and from and correct me if i'm wrong i know you're not gonna brag about yourself but most accomplished wrestlers they start at a very young age where you dove right in and you're beating like state champ you're competing with like state champions right because you were all in i had that same mindset later in my life and that's my regret because when we talked about like going back right mm-hmm. where i said i didn't have a regret when you asked me about like the firefights and like yeah. actually like you know shooting at people and killing people my regret is that i wasn't mature enough to be a leader back then. Like, I know what I'm capable of now. Like, anyone who knows me knows that, like, like for instance, if there's, like, a, a case that needs to be solved, I'm pretty sure you can ask anyone that, that I'm usually myself or someone else or maybe a couple others, like, I'm their go-to to get it done because I will put everything into it. I didn't have that same mindset back then. Because I didn't believe in myself. It wasn't until I start challenging myself, whether it's school, like going back to college, and giving myself a goal, saying, like, I have to get straight A's to show that I'm not that dumb kid who, who failed third grade and barely graduated high school. In boxing, I had to, compl- I had to do guns and hoses just to say that I, I, I saw it, I, like I, I seen it through. You know, I started it and I finished it. And then same with judo. Now, um, so I had to take a little hiatus from college, a year hiatus to be exact. So I'm getting, I'm actually glad that you had this podcast that you invited me because my goal right now, my short-term goal is to get my black belt in judo, which I'm testing in two weeks for. Then I'm going to start focusing more on college. Yeah. So those are my two goals. I gave myself within the next uh, five years, get finish my bachelor's, get my back, black belt in judo. I'm getting the judo black belt first, and then I'm going to get the 
bachelor's. Dude, it's so crazy because I think, I think Joe Rogan has a saying that all the best people that he knows, the most interesting people, the coolest people that he knows come from difficulties. They don't come from like the, you know, super privileged lifestyle. Everybody that he knows that he wants to be friends with comes from like a background like yours, you know, like a broken home and, and whatever else. And I think maybe it's because of the things that you're talking about. Maybe it's because it's like you've established that resilience in yourself. You know what I mean? I just think this is me personally. I, I For me, everyone has their own sort of rock bottom right in life. Um, I feel like I've experienced that. And I could only go up. It's either give up or go forward, you know. I chose to go forward, and I was able to, you know, get myself out of the trenches. And then once you establish that work ethic and um, that importance that you are valuable, I don't care who you are, you know. You could, um, like your uh, buddy who teaches autistic kids, right? You know, those... Anyone like the, I'm, I'm talking about the autistic kids, not your buddy. Everyone has some meaning in this life. You just got to find it, mm-hmm. you know, regardless what it is. And it starts with confidence and you got to actually go out of your way to do something like your podcast. You know, you're doing um, like when you had that injury with wrestling and you're going to start doing judo and stuff and grappling, right? And get back into this. Like, this is your passion right now, whereas, like, you know, judo now. I'm, I'd love to be grappling more. I wish I had more time. I really No, I, I know, but, like, I need that outlet. Yeah. You know, I have to have goals like that, like positive goals, so I don't do stupid things. <laughs> and um, I think that my life experience now, in hindsight, like, looking back, it's, like, I'm pretty, like, when I was on the road before Detective I always had a knack for finding the right cars and, and you know, like finding felons, right? Or people with meth. Like, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for me. It's because I associated myself at one time with bad people. <laughs> I know what to look for, right? And um, when I speak to those people and then they, you know, they confess or convey whatever's going on, right? And they're like, how are you getting to communicate? It's like, well, because I don't judge them. Like, who am I to judge anyone? You know? I I had a little bit of luck. I took advantage of that luck. Luck with, obviously, hard work and effort, right? You got to... I believe that everyone has a window that's going to open. You're either going to go through that window or you're going to close the window. Mm -hmm. You know? I chose to go through that window. Everyone's going to have that opportunity. And we, we deal with people... Um, during their worst times, right? Yeah. And and they don't see that there's a pathway to success. They only see the bad, and I think that's what you said. Like, you don't know what I'm going through. Yeah. Well, no. Just like kind of a victim mentality. Yes. Like poor me, poor me, poor me. And it's the, and it goes to show you how how um how people are so much alike is like you can take say like a black person or a minority or a poor person, right? Well, like, say you stop a black person, and he's like, you're only stopping because I'm black. That sort of entitlement, like, to try to get out is the same type of mindset as you pull that rich white kid over, right? 
And he's like, you know who, you know who my father is? You can't pull me over. Two different worlds, two of similar mindsets. Yeah. That sense of entitlement, you know, yeah. like they're owed something. Yeah. You get a rich person, poor person, same mindset. Yeah. That's why I'm really under the belief that anyone, you put your mind to it, you can accomplish whatever you want. So how have you changed as a dad? Because, like, seeing how important that fatherly role is in your own life, like, so how much that impacted you growing up and how for the first 30-something years of your life, you're, like, trying to fill, in my opinion, I don't know, but it seems like you're trying to fill a void that started in your childhood and it took you till you're, like, 30-some-odd years old to do that. How So how does you... What are you doing for your kids that you think is going to change that? That's funny. I'm actually going through that battle right now with my oldest boy. So my, um, I have to get this out real quick, especially since it's on a podcast. So my ex, when I left her, right, she ended up finding a good man who's a vice principal. And um, he treats my kids like they're his. Um, he, um, got, he was the one who got my ex out of all the legal troubles, you know, and she's doing very well right now. And I think that's a big part because of him. So I have a good relationship with him and their mom. And I have a seven year old now with my fiance. So I have three kids, right? And, um, we work together. To raise my children, my oldest two. So my two with my ex, I'll work with the stepdad yeah. and mom f- to benefit them. I, what I do differently is, like, you know how some people, like, for instance, if you live in that abusive household, um, it's not uncommon for the person who was abused to eventually be the abuser. Yeah, do the exact same thing. I'm doing the complete opposite. I'm actually out of the four parents. So my, you know, you got me, my fiance, stepdad, and their mom. I'm the most gullible one. So like my 16 year old, who's like, goes out and drinking and stuff like that, and they're like, you know, he's up to no good. And I'm like, oh, he's fine. He's not doing anything. <laughs> I and I really believe that because it's my kid. Because I want to, you know. Yeah. So I took that exact. So I'm working on being more firm with them. Really. So they know that I'm always there for them. Yeah. And I always go to their sporting events and whatever they choose to do. So my son, my oldest boy, does track and cross country. My daughter, cross country and cheerleading. And then my seven-year-old does wrestling, right? And I'm trying to make it a point to attend all their sporting events. Bo Nickel, man. Well, we'll see. I don't want to. (laughs) We'll see about that. (laughs) But I don't want to... um, I try to stay as much as I can. Let them know that I am there for them. And if they ever need something, please feel free to reach out to me. Did you feel like that was the biggest thing that was missing in your childhood? Like you just didn't feel like anybody was really there? Yeah, yeah, there was just no... um, My parents weren't present. I mean, they were, but they weren't. You know, they didn't... My dad was more concerned about drinking and just didn't all seem this. like he took an interest in you. That's correct. In fact, he's the one. I uh, he, uh, He's the reason why I joined the Marine Corps because I hated him at the time. 
And now it's like uh, we're so much alike, everyone tells us. So he'll make, like, these little jokes. They're, like, corny, and you know, I'll make the same jokes. And he's, like, my best friend now. You know, I have a very good relationship with my dad and my mother. My mother doesn't since when when he, when, when they split, my mom stopped using the painkillers and all that stuff, you know, so. But, um, no, I, in fact, I, I am so, when you said that about, like, what do you do different with your kids than when I was a kid, I'm actually too soft in my opinion. Yeah. I just can't hit my kid. Yeah. You know? And I need to work on just being a little more strict with them. Yeah. I can see that, man. You don't want to recreate that. You know, like, the last thing you want to do is be the same thing that you despise. I just want them to know that they're, like, I want them to live in a loving family. Yeah. You know? And, like, my oldest boy, he's back. He, It's like a roller coaster with him. He's, unlike me, he knows that he's smart. He just chooses not to do the, the work, right? And then I'll take something away. So he'll go from D's and F's to A's in a matter of, like, three weeks. Really? It's just him being lazy and not doing work. Yeah. My daughter has got more of her dad's mindset to where she's got to work hard for it. But she gets A's and B's, and it's never – she's disappointed with herself if she gets a B. Like, oh, I'm stupid. I got a B. I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, – I try to, to, I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying to find that balance in life, I guess. Yeah. I think I'm doing all right. But I think uh, one of the other things I want to come back to is at the very beginning of this, you talked about what your relationship w- was like with God whenever you were a kid and then how you kind of like lost that relationship yeah. with God. Um, what's your relationship with God like now? Oh, well, I I told you about how I um, dove in the whole thing. Like, I read the Bible front to back. That's what I've, the, I think the biggest thing, if I had to wrap you in a in a bow and tell, if I had to tell someone about you, it's like you will dive into whatever it is you're passionate about 100%. And I think a lot of that, like back in your drinking days, is because when you're passionate about something, you give it 150%. And like back in the day, you were passionate about doing dumb stuff and drinking. And you... Yeah. And put the pedal to the metal, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it goes back to, like, your relationship with God. I remember sitting car to car with you. And we're having conversations about God, and I'm, like, kind of just poking the bear, seeing if you're interested, and then next thing you know. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you what. I am not, like, if you're asking right now, is my faith? No, I believe in God 100%. Yeah. That's not, that's not an issue. It's me, like, going to church consistently because I'm lazy. But as far as, like... When I had my, um, you know, like I would, things in life start going well. And, you know, when things go well. You don't need God. You don't need God, (laughs) right? And then when things start, you know, slowly start, the pieces start falling apart. Before, in my life, before they fell apart again, I start really doing some soul searching. And for me, like, I need, like, proof. that Like, I know that um, the chances of Jesus coming down and saying, like, for me, I believe in Jesus Christ, right? The chances of him coming down and saying, hey, here I am, it's probably not going to happen, right? So, But I need, like, evidence to believe. I just don't want that blind faith, which, so I, I read a few books, Case for Christ, um, that book. Remember, yeah. What's that book called with the police officer that uh, wrote the... 
What is it? What did I buy? I bought it for you. I can't remember the name of it now. Cold Case Christianity. Yes. That was a great book. That was fantastic. And um, like I said, I read the Old Testament, New Testament. And for me, I found the evidence that I needed. What was it? No, I'm not going to. Like the (laughs) evidence? Yeah. Um, Well, so, like, for instance, when um, with the disciples, right? Back then, like being a Jew, being with the, the Jewish faith, right? You don't just change religions and go and follow this man who's, you know, claiming to be the son of God. And the fact that they followed him, and then um, Jesus gets crucified, and then they turn their backs toward him, like, oh, I guess he's not the son of God. Then he comes back down, and now basically. They're all in. Yeah. Right? So they have nothing to gain except a horrible, painful death. Yeah. Whatever they saw, they felt compelled to spread that message, regardless if they are going to die. You know? And the fact that they're going against their faith back then. Yeah. So that's kind of like uh, one thing that got me. And the... The, so that was my proof, and then the demeanor for Jesus, right? So when everything in the New Testament is quoted by Jesus, it's just there's nothing mean. You know, everything is, like, to help people. And the fact that I've kind of, like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of... The fact that when he was crucified and... He's asking God, the Father, to forgive these people. But they don't know what they're doing. Like, that's, like, that is complete opposite of me. You know, I want to, like, punish them. Yeah. And he's asking for forgiveness for them. Yeah, I interviewed, last week I interviewed Elizabeth Snyder. Well, Tucker now is her last name. Um, Blake's wife. Yeah. And, dude, it was so profound. At the very end of it, we talked about how she forgave the kid that, shot Blake sure dude it was like you just don't see that man without God you don't see that like my natural instinct without God is not to do that like my natural instinct is exactly what you just said it's like when somebody wrongs me my natural instinct is I want to punish this person like and I still have issues with that yeah like that's why I'm not gonna tell someone like oh you need to you know um Dive into Christianity. You need to believe in Christianity. That's that's your decision, right? I found what I needed to find for me to believe in God. Yeah. You know, and if someone asks me, I'll tell them like you're doing. But that's their decision. I am no place to judge because if anyone knows me, I still make stupid mistakes. I still do stupid things like a normal human being. Not really. Not as bad as well, you used to be. I acknowledge. You've them. made leaps and bounds, dude. And I acknowledge when when yeah. things start going bad. You know, like okay, I need to address this i need to fix myself so let's wrap this up with what you're doing now like what's uh what's joe judge doing now oh man um so i am a detective with the ofound police department um i am a father of three i live with my fiance we've been together 10 years everyone (laughs) <laughs> Why aren't I, you yeah, married? I know I a jeweler, dude. <laughs> I know I a know. jeweler. It's going to happen. We're going to get married. Um, so what Joe does now is um, 
I put a lot of uh, a lot of focus on my job. I try to raise my kids the best I can, and to um, be just a loving, I guess, husband, right? In the eyes of Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I need to get married, but uh, because I love my fiance, and without her, I actually credit her for. Um, that's another thing too, like reading the Bible. Right? It took me three months to read the entire Bible. Um, I credit her for speed reading. She taught me how to speed read. So, like, when I would read something and I would try to retain that, I would read it word for word and I would read out loud to myself. You know, like, um, the kid's name is Frank. I would be like, the kid's name is Frank. She told me to make a try to read with my mouth closed and try to take in the whole sentence. And it took me a couple books, but now... I got to the point to where when you speed read and you keep your mouth closed, you can kind of take in that whole sentence as opposed word for word. I do that, but I'm like, I have to be dyslexic or something, dude. I have to be. Why do you say that? I don't like the worst reader ever. See, I don't know. Dude, I'm seriously like the worst reader ever. Well, you got to read more than a book. Yeah, I know, dude. I read the Bible. The best book. I'm not saying that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but I just, I'm a terrible, like a horrible, horrible reader. And it, it's something like I just don't like doing because I'm so bad at it. But That's why you got to make yourself. I know, dude. That's what this whole podcast has been about, forcing yourself to do things to make yourself better. Dude, this is amazing. So um, right now you're doing a good thing. Hopefully I can help. You do, man. You help as my friend. You know what I mean? Like. Well, I appreciate it. You, seriously, you know, I had you on here not because, like, you haven't been involved in a police-involved shooting, um, but I know you, and I know the type of person that you are. I know the things that you've been through in your life, and I know that the rebound that, that Joe Judge made from, like you said yourself, you know, you're getting ready to lose your car, lose your house. You have no utilities to the person that I know now who's a fantastic investigator, a good dad, a good husband, you know, chasing Jesus, a lot of things went into Joe Judge making those steps, you know, or taking those steps. And and uh, although you haven't been involved in a police-involved shooting, all the stuff that you've done through the military and, you know, firefights and all this other stuff, you know, that reaches a whole audience that our podcast has never really talked to, you know. And, and 90% of the dudes that I work with are veterans. Like almost, I'm like the outcast. Like a guy that got into this at 21 years old and became a cop and then was never in the military. Like the vast majority of guys that do this job are guys like you. They get out of the military. They're looking for brotherhood. They're looking for something that they feel like they're needed, that they feel like they're going to do good in a community, that they're, they find meaning in this job. And they go and they, they become a cop. You know, like they go from the Marine Corps. You know, you have your boys and all your friends. And you guys are together. You're like, trying to accomplish this task, you get out of there, and what do you do? You go search for that. You go search yeah. for that whole thing again. And, you know, so I, I'm truly the outcast. I think probably high 75 80% of the people that I work with are veterans. Um, so I knew you had a, a wild veteran story, so I wanted to have you on here, and, and I wanted to wanted you to tell your story. And yeah, I tried to water it down a bit, and... Uh, Hopefully, well, hopefully I got the message across because it's not, I'm only on this podcast for your project, right? 
Yeah. And, and I, I want it to be geared toward law enforcement, right? Because that's where the resources need to go for right now. Mm-hmm. Like military, we got, you know, a million things, right? Law enforcement, when you're in an officer-involved shooting, it doesn't, you don't have those resources available, right? And, um, but hopefully my message will resonate with some veteran, you know, or someone who's not doing well. Yeah. Because my life's good now. You know, I have nothing. I have a loving family. My job can be a pain in the butt sometimes, but overall, I enjoy it very much. Um, and, um, yeah, I have life's good right now. Yeah, life's always good. God's always good, dude. Yeah. He's always good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, we'll end it here, man. But I hope you know, you are my, you're my dude. You're the guy who, like, when... I need to be checked. I expect you to check me. So, yeah. well, you need to start training with us, and we'll, <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> All right, dude. So, all right. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll end it there. All right, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for hanging in there to the end of the episode. I really appreciate you guys listening. Um, one thing that our organization has kind of been struggling with is getting notified of officers who have been involved in officer-involved shootings. One way that we're trying to combat that is if you go to our website, www.1078project.com, you will see that we've added a place for um, our audience to refer officers. So if you are aware of a police officer who's been involved in an officer-involved shooting, you can go to our website, you put in their name, the department that they work for, and as much information as you have about them, whether they have kids, how many kids they have, if they're married, um, it just helps us design the box to the best of our ability to make sure we're giving them as many resources as we can. Also, if you're trying to support the 1078 Project, you can uh, go to our website as well. You can see there's a place where you can buy merch. Um, the Crafty Midwest Mommy has been uh, grateful enough to donate all the proceeds for the t-shirts back to us. So if you're looking for a practical way to get a nice t-shirt and also support the cause, you can go to our website as well uh, for that. And uh, with all that being said, I really appreciate all the support. Uh, The podcast is doing much better than I thought it would be doing at this point, and that wouldn't be possible without you guys, our audience. So thank you very much, and uh, I'll see you guys next week. The 1078 Project podcast is proudly sponsored by Deemed Fit. Deemed Fit is an activewear and a leisure company created for first responders. Be a part of their movement to instill confidence, motivation, and a willingness to keep pushing forward. Deemed Fit is a first responder-owned company looking to help first responders and their friends stay as physically and mentally fit as possible. Stay Deemed Fit.